Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Ken the Provocateur. And Scott, you are sick. You know that? S-I-Q-U-E, sick. I thought you were saying I was a sick man from the Goldfoot series then. <laughs> Although I say that, and clearly from my voice, I'm the one that's sick, but nonetheless. <laughs> yes, yes, Cam is just getting over a, a bout of the old uh, COVID-19. Um, that's but you're right. feeling better now, which we, we are very happy to hear. Um, now, we've, we're tackling a whole new franchise this week, and um, I wanted to bring in a specialist. And in true Spy Hard's fashion, I've brought in someone that's very well educated about many aspects of 60s spy films, but has written about James Bond, but not these films. Uh, that's very much an us thing. So I think without further ado, let's introduce our guest. He is an author. He is a producer. He is a man about town. He's actually one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet in real life, friend of the show, and he has said if we bring him on the show, he'll show us his secret sorority handshake. It is Mr. A.J. Chowdhury. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Hello, Scott. Hello, Cam. A pleasure to be here, and uh, it's wonderful to celebrate something that's kind of Bond-adjacent, shall we say. We've uh, we've just come off 60 years of James Bond, and I think I saw you all the Bond shenanigans at the BFI and the Royal Albert Hall, and this kind of shows kind of the effect of James Bond, and uh, I like I like the subject matter. So without further ado, thank you so much. Well, let, let's take a beat before we talk about the film and, and bring up what the film is, although people have clicked on the show they hopefully know. Um, AJ, you, I mean, we've met in, in real life several times, but where does your love of spy films come from? My love of spy films comes from my gateway drug was James Bond, of course. I was a kid in 1977, six years old, on holiday in North Wales, Carnarvon. It was a rainy day, and my parents took me and my twin brother and older brother three restless boys out to see a movie. I had no clue what it was. In it, there was a man with steel teeth, a car that turned into a submarine, a guy that skied off the edge of a mountain, and I was hooked. The spy loved me. And it was, you know, it's the perfect film for every any preteen boy anywhere in the world, especially in the UK. And then, of course, I grew up and I started, I was one of these precocious people that was a big reader read Tolkien and Narnia and fancy stuff as a 10 year old 11 year old then graduated eventually into the Ian Fleming books which I read in 1982 all of them right through to Colonel Sun and the paperback edition of John Gardner's license renewed and then I was like a heroin addict that had run out of smack I needed methadone. I needed something to replace it. And then I went on to my local library, those good secondhand bookshops, to all the other spy books I read, Len Dayton. I read people like um, Jason Love, the, the, those books. And eventually I found myself into Matt Hull and uh, Donald Hamilton's books, which I read as many as I could get. They were relatively easy to get in those days in some form or another. And I just ploughed my way through and then gradually became a general spy novel fan in general and of course got to the the films uh the dean martin films which was shown on sort of rainy sunday afternoons on bbc2 and uh it's only when delving deep into a bond story i found the kind of connection 
with Matt Helm. And uh, like everyone, I urge people to read some of the Donald Hamilton books. Uh, they're completely different from the movies. And of course, the Matt Helm, in our book, I, in my 800-page biography of the James Bond films, I wrote with Matthew Field called Some Kind of Hero. Um, we, make, we make an analogy that Matt Helm was the monkeys and James Bond was the Beatles. You know, and it, there's a there's a there's a, fun, <laughs> there's a strong connection and overlap, which we'll discover as we go ahead. So that's my uh, that's my story. How that's my narrative. How we got here. Well, well, batting it back to you for a second, and you mentioned the book, and you know, we'll have a link to that in the show notes below. I've got a copy. I'm waiting for the update now. It's been a it's been a it's been a few years since we. I think 2015, 2016, it was published. 2015 was published. There was an update in 2018, a paperback, which is the last version. And to tell you where that was, the last we end on that Danny Boyle has been hired as a director. So there's a lot of work to be done, which we've been doing amongst many other things. And uh, because of the um, the the kind of publication issue with, with sorry the release issue with No Time to Die, we couldn't get a big publisher involved so we're now waiting hopefully for the next franchise which is just as well because we've uncovered so much more what we've got in 800 pages only the tip of the tentacle but we'll get to that when we get to that but yeah we're excited about what there is to come what i mean you said you read a lot of spy literature watched a lot of spy films you were brought into the game by james bond so it kind of makes sense but what made you want to write about james bond um, I'd been involved in the old days. We had something called the James Bond International Fan Club, and I was involved with that, writing articles and going to events. Then any time in London, they had often quite good screenings at the, the NFT and National Film Theatre, as it then was. There were lots of guest talks, and I was a like all of us here. I think well, I'm a general film fan and a general spy aficionado. So I, you know, one curtails over there. He then made friends, many of whom ended up writing and doing Bond books themselves, or the Bond DVDs. All the guys that did those are friends of mine, and it became more of a kind of kind of academic social circle where you just enjoy. Like Scott, you and I will, will meet with say Tom Butler and other people like that, and we'll have we'll enjoy the movie or the talk or the book, and we'll also have a pint of beer every now and again as well so that became thing then i got involved in various websites uh, mr kiss kiss bang bang was a website that throws it back commanderbottom.net our friends at mi6 which began as a website the confidential i then uh, became the spokesperson for the james bond international fan club and edited a james bond journal myself called kiss kiss bang bang and eventually after writing articles for various magazines cinema retro um, and various magazines and contributing to newspapers and media reports when people wanted to have a talking head about james bond i eventually got together matthew field is my co-author uh He's actually the he's actually the best selling author of books on the making of the Italian Job, um, the fiftieth anniversary book published in two thousand nineteen is brilliant by Porter Press, and also he's written a biography of the film producer Michael Dealey, who produced Blade Runner, The Italian Job, a whole bunch of classics, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and won an Oscar for The Deer Hunter. So Matthew's a very very established and brilliant writer himself. Um, and he lets me tag along. He works in the movie industry, in publicity and and stuff like that. And I, as part of my day job as a lawyer, I work in uh, entertainment law and work on movies and TV and film and music. So that informs a lot of one's 
enthusiasm and fandom. It's a slightly more looking, it's slightly more from an industry point of view, which, which we hope to try. Because a lot of fans, when they discuss stuff, don't really know too much about that side of things. So we, well, it, it helps you contextualize decision making if you understand, you know, that, you know, sets are built three months in advance. So, you know, they'll book the space and all that stuff camera equipment is booked so it gives you an idea of all the decisions that go into making a film or a piece of entertainment or writing a book that aren't necessarily reported about in empire magazine or in junkets so the lot that what we see what when people think they're film fans they are but it's kind of the tip of the iceberg of what really goes on and we hope we brought a lot of that to bear with our book and our work also in the age of the internet where anything goes we try to source and annotate things properly from good sources, and that's some of the unique selling point. Plus, we interviewed more people than ever been interviewed for any James Bond project before, first-hand interviews, and people people who'd never spoken about James Bond before. We've got some great doozies coming up for people. And so, yeah, so it's much more of a journalistic exercise and wanting to understand mainly for ourselves and also, I mean, you guys do a great version. You do great interviews. You do great sort of, it's more than just, I think this, I reckonism. It's a lot more kind of knowledgeable and kind of uh, uh, curated, so to speak. And that's what Spy Hards or any good podcast does. And we do a version of what you do, guys. You know, it's just that we're all in the same pool, enjoying enthusiasm and trying to shed a bit more knowledge and light on things. I think that's where we come from. I mean, I'm in complete agreement. I mean, some of the best moments I've had so far in these two years is, is our interviews with people and specifically people behind the scenes. I mean, I've, we've spoken to some great actors, but the screenwriters, the directors, cinematographers, you learn so much about what goes into making one of these films. It's it's remarkable. And I remember when I first met you, I think, with Tom Butler. And I, I think I was Tom's like, oh, yeah, they spoke to Jeff Kane. And you were just like, oh, yeah, I spoke to him. I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> I was like, this is this is the Don here I'm speaking oh, to. Oh, no, no. I, gosh, I hope I didn't come across like that. No, no, I love that you did that. You did a brilliant interview. You, all your interviews are brilliant. No, no, I love the fact you a, interview people. Plus, you guys have a lot of depth and knowledge yourself. So you contextualize. Anyone that does it, anyone that contributes anything to the firmament rather than assume is brilliant. So the fact you do this podcast, the fact you write, you research, that enthusiasm is wonderful and i applaud anyone that does something because all it's really good to con to just consume and watch and click and like but anyone that gets off their backside and does something in any shape or form now i'm full of admiration for you guys generally what you do the the breadth of what you do is particularly unique in in this world i mean who else is going to do a podcast on matt helm very few people well <laughs> yeah well that's fair well okay Final question before we talk about that man we just mentioned. And everyone gets asked this on the show. Guests, interviewees, everyone. AJ Chowdhury, what is your favourite spy movie? <laughs> My favourite spy movie? Okay, I'll give an easy answer to that. My favourite spy movie at the moment is a film called Clear and Present Danger, 1994. Oh, nice. Philip Noyce, Harrison Ford returning as Jack Ryan. It's notionally another Jack Ryan movie, but it's a really important, bigger movie than just about spies. It involves illegal war in South America. But I think, dare I say it, on the day the Prime Minister resigned, I like. I think spy movies or spy, espionage real life has a bigger picture about how we're governed, what we do, our liberties, uh, what really works in the, in the shadows. And I think that's what 
the bigger picture of all spy literature is about. It's about human frailties and also institutional government frailties. That's a really entertaining movie. You'll love it. But it's also about something. And it's a really underwatched, brilliant movie, I think, qualifies uh, for some great action set pieces, but it's not all about that. I, uh, I could pick another thousand, but that's the one I'm going to pick off the top of my head. Oh, that's a great pick. I, I think that that's a great pick. It's the first time we've ever heard Jack Ryan, I think, on the list. And I think, uh, so. I think yeah, I think you just booked your return visit as well yeah. with uh, <laughs> yeah. Clear and Present Danger. It's a great, it's a great espionage movie about the wider implications of espionage, and and, and especially and currently, and all, all even if you look at the James Bond books, you know the license to kill is quite an unorthodox thing, and that in later books has become a, a sort of a, a point of issue. You can even see that it's because officially there is no license to kill. I think there are wider issues in all spy fiction, greater thematics things, and I like books that explore that the bond films are actually surprisingly deep when they want to be in their depth and things like that although they don't focus on that film like skyfall was replete with huge thematic qualities that i don't think get talked about analyzed enough um of course you also get moonraker which is also great fun which uh, (laughs) the greatest theme Hmm. about that is john barry's but but you know i think underneath it they scratch it there's a I think Robert Darvey, who played Sanchez, once said there's a message in the ravioli. I think without being over-pretentious, that at its best, spy espionage or spy books or movies have that element to it, which I don't think gets discussed or understood much. Well, I uh, I can't fault your choice. I think on that note, we've checked our vaccinations. <laughs> we've all had some uh, by the sounds of it. Let's talk about the film. Cam, what on earth are we talking about this week? Yes, we are talking about 1966's The Silencers, starring Dean Martin, the first of the four Matt Helm films. Now, before we track the behind the scenes of this and get into the nitty gritty, I'd only ever heard of the Matt Helm films when we compiled this list. So this is a new watch to me. I've only ever seen Dean Martin in one film, which is Airport, and now two films. Um, AJ, did you have any, I mean, did you catch this film? Uh, You mentioned BBC Two before. Yeah, so it's released 66. Uh, uh, I, I wasn't even a speck, speckle in my mum and dad's eye. Uh, I, I caught it like a lot of movies in those days. I used to get the Radio Times delivered, which was the broadcasting TV guide for BBC programmes only. This is really going back, your viewers, and you guys are too young to remember these things. So we'd wow. scan it, you'd find the movies, and there was, uh, by this time I was dimly aware of movies or spy things other than James Bond, as I said. And there was The Silences, and it was a Matt Helm film and Dean Martin. I'd seen Dean Martin, I think, again in these sort of Frank Sinatra movies. I was dimly aware of him, uh, and then I saw The Silences. Now, when you've seen all the Bond films by that point, I would have said this was in the early 80s, maybe 83, 84. I'd seen all the bomb i was up to date by then with all the bomb movies which i'd seen at the cinema and on tv as and when they'd come out so this was like a new bond movie to some extent if anyone that's seen the movie it plays like a quasi bond movie purely intentionally as we'll get into it's a great fun watch if you check your brain it's a great fun easy going loungy spy movies in our little pre-discussion we talked a little bit about the Austin Powersness of it, but when you see it playing Austin Powers played straight and fun with beautiful women, 
kind of like nice loungy music. The, the, the score is actually a highlight of it with these wonderful sort of uh, loungy ballads thrown in every now and again. Um, and Dean Martin, charming as heck. It wasn't quite Bond, of course it wasn't, but it was fun, entertaining stuff otherwise. And rather like the books were kind of Bond replacements, in the absence of a Bond film, this discovery of all these other Bond mania movies worked for me, and I enjoyed it for what it was. Especially when there's no like physical media really at that point. So if it's on BBC, it's yeah. a spy, exactly. give it a watch. Yeah, right. Makes sense, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Cam, any connection at all? Not really. I remember, I think it was probably maybe the first Austin Powers movie or something where I became aware of some of these outside James Bond um, properties. And I remember knowing who Flint was. Um, yeah. But I remember hearing the name Matt Helm thrown out. And I was like, oh, oh, there's another spy series. But both the Flints and the uh, the Matt Helms, I feel like when I was sort of coming of age and watching movies on TV and going to video stores and the library and things like that, those movies just weren't available to me. And so it was like I'd hear the names. It was like, oh, I would watch these because I like James Bond, but they're not presented to me in a way that I can actually watch them. And especially with the Helms, I really wouldn't have been able to pick them out because I wouldn't have known what to look for name-wise. So it would be like, it would be confusing. Like a Flint, I remember seeing the name Flint on a VHS tape at a video store. But Helm, I, I didn't even know what that series could even be. So it it wasn't until really many years later that I became aware of what the series was. But at that point, I just never caught up with them. And so when we started this podcast, they were one of the first things I put on our list to cover. Because it was like, finally, we can get to the to these Matt Helm films that I've heard about for the last, you know... 15 years or whatever, 20 years. And Well, we've made you wait two years now, listeners, uh, yeah. to boldly go into the world of Matt Helm. So I think let's talk about the film a little bit. Here is your letterbox.com synopsis if you haven't seen it yet or you just want to hear me talk about it. The Silencers, the best spy thriller of 1966. <laughs> can't, can't disagree with that, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Sexy sex. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't actually pre-read this, so I'm doing it live. This is fun. Matt Helm is called out of retirement to stop the evil Big O organization who plan to explode an atomic bond over Alamogordo, New Mexico and start World War Three in the year 66. I think you said atomic bond, which I really appreciate. That's actually perfect. Uh, but oh, sure, yeah, perfect. That works perfectly. Well. Nailed it. Home run. Yeah. Sorry, I was so I was so put off by sexy sex. I was. Uh, I'm still reeling from it. You're like short circuiting. <laughs> you you got to take over now. I, I'm out. Yeah, it is funny though. They say that you know the best spy film of well, sexy sex or sixty six. Uh, like there was no Bond movie that year, so I guess that was a very safe claim for them to make. Was there anything else this year? Uh, like, I think uh, we'll um, get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Well, like Alfred Hitchcock's Torn Curtain. There was no Bond movie in '66. Yeah. Yeah. There was a bunch of Bond mania movies there. Probably there would have been a whole bunch. But yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, some, if you said to us like Modesty Blaze came out yeah, this year or some, something yeah, like that. Sure. Like that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Cam, why don't you take us on a tour that ends in your room and tell us all about <laughs> the making of the Silences? Yeah, let me just climb out of the bathtub here. Um, <laughs> so this project started with producer Irving Allen, who 
I don't know that Bond fans necessarily know the name Irving Allen, but he was a one-time partner of Albert Cubby Broccoli. And, you know, the two of them worked for Warwick Productions. And the split between the two of them came when the Bond rights became a thing. And Cubby Broccoli was compelled to pursue these rights, and he thought this could really be a big deal for film. And uh, Irving Allen was like, no, these movies are going to fail. So they split apart. Harry Seltzman entered the picture, Bond was born, and the world lived happily ever after. Except for Irving Allen, who was like, I made a stupid, stupid decision. And so, one day he was at an airport, he purchased a Matt Helm novel, read it, and licensed it the very next day. And was like, okay, I can now have my spy franchise. This is this is very much like the producer that like sent the Beatles out of the room. I said they never get anywhere or whatever it was. AJ, I know you're a big Beatles guy. You've taken me on a tour of like Beatles places in London. I don't remember the exact chap's name, but that did happen, right? That's right. In fact, I think in some kind of era, we say uh, Irving Allen or Columbia Pictures turning down Bond was the equivalent of Decca turning down the Beatles. Um, I'll take over a bit from what Cam said. He's brilliant about that. Let's just talk a little about the author, Donald Hamilton, a Swedish-born yeah. chap who, who moved to America, ended up living in Santa Fe, was a son of a doctor and went to study chemistry and had four children, was married and loved writing and became a Pulp Fiction magazine writer, wrote articles and sold stories and did so well. He could earn a living at that. Uh, wrote a number of TV shows and ideas that made into TV shows. One was a 1951 TV film called Deadfall, which starred Barry Nelson, the original James oh, nice. Bond. And um, anyway, he went on to write the, a number of Pulp Fiction novels. And in 1959, inspired by Ian Fleming's success, wrote the first uh, uh, Matt Helm book called Death of a Citizen, which was published in February 1960. Um, to give any idea of the Matt Helm series, it was kind of like James Bond, except through the vision of uh, Raymond Chandler. It started as a kind of down at heel, private eye detective slash spy operative there. So they were quite gritty. They were quite tough. Um, they had that kind of, and they, they evolved over. He eventually wrote 27 books and there's a 28th that remained unpublished. And um, all with the death of a citizen was a, uh, atypical title they all were called the ambushers the silence the silences i think was the fourth book published in 1962 and um that's the history there of uh, donald hamilton and of course when as, as that fateful day irving allen who was cubby broccoli's senior partner let's talk a little bit about the producer irving allen born irving applebaum was a aspiring director and um worked in hollywood worked got a role for someone in a cowboy movie as a favor to cubby broccoli and that favor was to howard hughes and um became involved with cubby broccoli as a producer they he directed a film called avalanche which started uh, in 1946 was produced by cubby's cousin pat de Sico, who brought cubby broccoli to hollywood they produced in south audley street which then became the offices for eon productions they sat across each other at a partner's desk and in fact well after Cubby Broccoli went into business with Harry Saltzman post Warwick Productions. Uh, Irving Allen was still at Warwick Productions, still at still at uh, Pinewood. In fact, Peter Lamont, in our book *Time Again a Hero*, says that he remembers Irving Allen listening in on some of the plot points 
that happened, and we'll come to that with the movie. Um, so the Irving Allen found Donald Hamilton, and the fi- the final piece of this puzzle was a guy called Mike Frankovich. He was the head of UK production for Columbia Pictures, and he was based in the the, the UK. And he too understood the filmmaking scene on the continent. And in fact, Warwick Productions was released commercially through in in America through Columbia Pictures, and. Um, Mike Frank, which was a friend of Cubby Broccoli's, and in fact, Cubby Broccoli thanks him in his Irving, uh, Irving G. Thalberg award speech. And together they uh, sort of grew up and made pictures together of varying profitability. Again, the usual format was having British stars made in Britain with American film stars, so British talent behind the camera and American film stars fronting it. So you got distribution. So that was the modus operandi until, of course, they wanted to go their separate ways. Cubby Broccoli produced effectively um, the, the trials of Oscar Wilde on his own. And um, Irving Allen took away a number of Warwick Productions ideas, including Genghis Khan and Cromwell, which finally got made. And Irving Allen resettled to America in 1963. And um, Mike Frankovich then became head of worldwide production for Columbia Pictures and came back from Europe at the same time. And it's with Mike Frankovich who was head of Columbia, who had turned down Bond or hadn't produced, hadn't given enough money. Then Mike Frankovich and Irving Allen, who had also alienated Fleming in a meeting to get the Bond books, then they teamed together and they wanted to get their slice of the James Bond action. And that's how we come to Irving Allen, where we come to 1966's The Silencers. Right, yeah. And so The Silencers took basically the first and the fourth books, elements of, uh, very loosely took those elements, and they brought on writer um, Oscar Saul to write this film. And he got his start in 1944 writing the Cary Grant comedy Once Upon a Time. And Scott, I don't normally read the plot synopses on movies, but this one enchanted me and I need to watch this movie. A cat, Mm. yes, a cash-strapped theater producer promotes a nine-year-old boy's dancing caterpillar. (laughs) <laughs> very good i'm buying it. I, I just went through several emotions as you read that out to me <laughs> hey say but caterpillar mm, yes dancing one carrie grant mm, yeah carrie grantapillar okay yeah, yeah. so <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna check this out i hope it's like mr mind from shazam that'd be amazing but um <laughs> oscar saul went on to write a lot of um you know vehicles for stars like ida lupino barbara stanwick william holden Nothing that like was like kind of name movies that would jump out at people. The most notable thing was he had an adaptation credit on 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire, which was a massive film event, Marlon Brando starring vehicle. And that movie won the screenplay Oscar. He did not get the Oscar. That went to Tennessee Williams for writing A Streetcar Named Desire. So I'm the adaptation credit was the sort of credit that would not exist anymore. So it'd be probably more on a technical level versus the actual content of the writing. So it gets a little fuzzy. I would honestly have to open up a book and start reading about Academy qualifications for 1951. But yes. Which is the sort of thing you would do, to be fair. That is true. That is true. Um, He also had another notable writing credit on a movie called An Affair in Trinidad, which was a Rita Hayworth vehicle. And it was directed by Vincent Sherman, who we talked about fairly recently. He was the director of All Through the Night. I wonder, I'd heard that film before. So you've mentioned it on that episode. There you go. Yep. And he also wrote for Sam Peckinpah, Major Dundee, 
which is a Charlton Heston film that was a big deal. And that was what he had written right up until Silencers. And I think the vision of Silencers changed a bit. And AJ, I'm sure, can comment on this as well. But this, you know, Oscar Salt, when you go through his work, he doesn't necessarily lean into, like, comedy. He's not, like, a comedy writer. And that seems to have changed, really, with um, director Phil Carlson, who got his start as a Universal Pictures prop man, moved into assistant directing, working on some early Universal horror movies like Werewolf of London, Invisible Man Returns, things like that, some Abbott and Costello films. But um, he was someone who very much, when he moved into directing, and he was someone who did, a studio guy, did a lot of things. He did like an Elvis movie, for example, Kid Galahad, Robert Mitchum movie called Rampage. But in 1961, he wanted to make a movie called The Secret Ways with Richard Widmark. And he wanted to make this as a kind of like lighthearted, fun spy movie, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that sort of thing. But Richard Widmark disagreed with him, and so there was a bit of a battle as to what the tone should be. It wound up being a more serious film, and so basically Phil Carlson lost that battle. But The Silencers was very appealing to him and was kind of his way to actually do a tongue-in-cheek kind of spy film. And it seems like that is kind of where the shift in tone really began to happen under Phil Carlson. And AJ, is that um, true to what you've um, come across in your research? Yeah, I, it's slightly more... Well, the Phil Carlson question is a great idea. Phil Carlson directed this, and as Cam, you, you pointed out correctly, Phil Carlson also has a big Bond connection because he was the he was the director that United Artists specified they wanted to make the first James Bond film at the time. And the only reason he didn't do it because he was too expensive. Terence Young or whoever they had... The British directors end up being cheaper. So there's a bit of history there. So rather like losing out on the Bond role like Piers Brosnan, this was unfinished business, I think, for Phil Carlson. Um, yeah, you're right. So the, the, the Irving Allen set up Medway Productions and that was his production entity when they eventually got Dean Martin to make the films and Dean Martin cut in as a producer with his production company, Claude Productions. And Phil um, Dean Martin brought in his own writer, a guy called Herbert Baker, that did uncredited rewrites on it. And when you watch the film, it's very entertaining with all these quips and one line is very lounge core. And I think a combination of, as, as um, Cam says, the, the, the writer, the credited writer, and then a bunch of other people, like all movies, have a number of writers. And I think that's how the... 66 version of the science was confected i'm pretty sure i think donald hamilton didn't really think dean martin was a good fit for his hard-nosed detective spy and um, neither did the producer irving allen think much until he met dean martin at a party and everything sort of rolled on from there but well uh, i think cam you got it more or less right i think that's how these things happen it's a combination of influences who's available who can guarantee the box office and who the producers and distributors will back yeah definitely it, it's i just find the whole i mean maybe cam has some more notes in a second about it but the whole like that these books were originally straight yeah yeah there wasn't really any comedy in them yeah. and this film is about as far <laughs> from that as you're gonna get yeah like i found a quote about like the the book series just known for its grimness of tone and events and i'm like huh i don't know that i would say that about this film <laughs> I mean, the moment where like Dean Martin's having his uh, his nuts uh, blasted by a uh, shimmying machine is uh, that's not dark or gritty. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. That sounds quite pleasant. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the context of these movies was by 1965, 66, everyone was making a spy movie. Think comic book movies today and Bond and birthed the whole... I, I said it birthed a genre and people said, no, they're already spy movies, but not quite like Bond, not parodic, humorous, slightly tongue-in-cheek, all of that world which Bond started. And this was a, a spoof of a spoof. And, of course... Like like Derek Flint, James Coburn's Derek Flint. This was America's answer to James Bond. One of James Bond's unique selling points was of the Britishness, and all of a sudden we get the American James Bond, for which many many spy movies uh, came about, and this was one of those. And but with its provenance of Phil Carlson and uh, and um, Irving Allen, may and a series of literary novels, maybe there was an attempt to do that here. But the end result, what we got on screen was slightly different. I mean, it's interesting story-wise. It's sort of Death of a Citizen involves, it's set in New Mexico. It's quite a gritty novel about nuclear a nuclear project and falling out. And then um, Dean Mar- uh, Matt Helm's daughter gets kidnapped and eventually gets recovered. So it's kind of a, plays a little bit like a diehard Liam Neeson novel. Um, Matt Helm, by the way, in the books was originally called George Helm, but George was deemed too... Uh, ordinary. So Matt replaced George. Um, I, I do get that. Yeah. Like George just feels like, like I would be called George. and My life is very ordinary. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I don't know. You're doing a Spy House podcast. I mean, it's what oh, we all aspire uh, to, th- Scott. Th- th- this, this is this is me dressing up. Yeah. Uh, in my everyday <laughs> life, I'm just, uh, just plain old George. <laughs> um, I mean, who would believe in a spy called George, eh? Paging Mr. Lazenby. You know, so... Uh, so, or yeah, Smiley. Yeah, yeah smiley, I was thinking the exactly, Smiley, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a nice precedent there. Um, so, yeah, Matt, the, the Matt Home film series, it's interesting, the casting of uh, Dean Martin, if I might go into that. Dean Martin was 45 years old by this time. He was a crooner. He was an actor. He had a successful TV show. I believe he suggested the deal to the producers that he was sure they would refuse, and they accepted it. He had 10% of the profits and um in bruce skivelly's wonderful book on matt helm which an e-book which i urge everyone to get he says that this eventually made matt miss made dean martin more more money than sean connery got from bond yeah um so that's an interesting little uh, uh background note there if if that's true one of the interesting things i stumbled across was them talking about how like they really wanted someone like paul newman to star in the movie but the idea of getting sort of your a-list marquee actor at that point wasn't going to fly because none of them wanted to compete against Sean Connery in this arena. So, like, Dean Martin has been around for a long time at this point, you know, Hollywood legend, and known more for, like, his comedic sensibilities often, even though you watch, like, Rio Bravo, he's fantastic. But, like, yes, has much more of a comedic light edge. So, I think, made a lot more sense to kind of pivot as opposed to try to replicate more of a James Bondy kind of vibe with a, you know, like a Paul Newman or whatever. It's interesting the star of Dean Martin's relatively established stature was chosen because if you look at all the other Bond uh, Bond alikes, things like Derek Flint, James Coburn was an upcoming star. If you look at things like, um, you know, Monica, um, Modesty Blaze with Monica Vitti and you had, you know, the Tony Adams movie, Licence to Kill, you had a lot, the liquidator with Rod Taylor. Yeah. You had a lot of these sort of upcoming stars that were sort of in the first rush of youth. Dean Martin wasn't that. They were trying to 
emulate the Connery masculinity of virility. Dean Martin was slightly post that. Arguably, he was more Roger Moore before Roger Moore and uh, found the space to explore the, the burgeoning spy you know, franchises that there were multiple multiplicities of in those days. But yeah, it was a far cry from what Donald Hamilton thought and what was going at the time. Because if you even if you look compared to the, the spy movies of the time, this was a lot softer, more comedic, um, broader, much softer, you know, uh, uh, sort of attempt at it. Although there are moments of hardness in there, that, especially in the silences, which we'll get to. But Definitely. And it, it's notable to me, like when you look at some of the people doing rewrites, you referenced Herbert Baker, um, yeah. who did, you know, he was a studio guy and like wrote a lot of comedy. And he wrote 20 episodes of the uh, Frank Sinatra show. So he's kind of like perfect to be coming in to work on some of the, you know, the dialogue, of course, for Dean Martin. But then you also had Maurice uh, Richland, um, who was a co-writer of like the Pink Panther, mm-hmm. um, Operation Petticoat, and like the Rock Hudson movie Come September. So like he also has like a real comedy vibe as well. So like they were finding the perfect rewriters to come in to kind of shape this into a Dean Martin vehicle. So I think that's like... Whatever, we'll talk about the movie in a second, about our thoughts on the movie. But in terms of, like, shaping a star vehicle, they had the right people in place. Yeah. Well, they wanted it to do well. Like, oh, yeah. you want the best people, and you want the top actor that you can think of that suits it. Obviously, it wasn't their first choice. But th- this all lines up from them wanting it to be a successful competitor yeah. to what is the biggest, one of the biggest franchises of the 60s. Yeah, definitely. It also shines a light on the skill the Bond filmmakers made that people took lightly, rather like comic book movies today. Everyone thinks, well, you just make a comic movie, it's going to make, it's going to make money. That's not true. Um, and I think Bond's competitors, especially uh, these films, the, the Matt Helm films, show how hard it is to make a successful series. Um, the tone, this sort of outspoofed the spoof. I think some of the casting and the production values were, after they spent their money on Dean Martin, the above-the-line element, there wasn't much money and ingenuity. These were made in America. These were made in Desilu Studios where they made Star Trek. Yep. And you had interesting filmmakers behind it, but slightly old, as, as Cam says, studio people. It was very much a studio American movie. Um, the casting was interesting. We'll go to the villain first, Sung Se, played by Victor Buono, uh, Academy Award-nominated actor for... Um, in 1963, I've forgotten the name. Cam will help me out here. Yeah, whatever happened to Baby Jane? That's right, Betty Davis. And and the thing about him was he was actually on the cast list to play Goldfinger. He was in discussions initially to play I Goldfinger. totally buy that. Um, totally he's 26 that. years old when he makes this movie. And it makes Dr. No look PC because he plays an, a Chinese character, an Asian character with heavy makeup and... Uh, uh, questionable, questionable taste nowadays, but back then, hey, it was '66. It's not quite. Uh, it's not quite Peter Ustinov in one of our dinosaurs is missing. It's not but quite. It's, uh, it, it, yeah, it's up there. It's up there. But you know, I also think it also shows a shift in where they were going with it because at this time, the height of the Cold War, the Russians were the villains, and the Bond films are the first series to actually make them post Cold War movies. The Russians were never the principal villains of the early Bond films, it was Spectre. And here we've got um, ICE, the intelligence and counter-espionage organisation that Dean Martin's Matt Helming's on, against Big O, the big intelligence 
group operations, I think. I, I don't, can't remember what they named. But big O was a kind of slang term for an orga- the female orgasm. And <laughs> already you're heading into these sort of apolitical territory, which is sort of uh, kind of shows the effect of bonds. So we're at the height of the Cold War. But it's the year already. 66. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. ICE as an acronym has not aged great, though, in yeah, terms of right. the uh, fun-loving spy world. What does the big O? What does the big O stand for? Can Can anyone remember? I looked it up. I, it's on IMDb. I'll okay, have it in right. a second. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. Look it up. Anyway, so anyway, but the thing it doesn't really matter what it stood for. It matters what it was in place of. And and you've you've got all these wonderful actresses. Sid Charisse is the dancer. Sariti. You've got um, uh, Dahlia Larvey, who then reappears later in. 67's Casino Royal, uh, playing a wonderful agent here. And you've got a um, um, whole bunch of other leading ladies that augment and, and you know, make this film very beautiful to look at. I, I can confirm that the big O, apart from its obvious meaning, stands for the Bureau of International Government and Order. There we go. There we go. That's not very villainous sounding. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, it's, it's quite official. It's like, I, yeah, you... A civil servant works for the big O. Yeah, that's the well, spectre of this of this uh, Matt Helman verse, if we like. Um, okay, well, <laughs> um, <laughs> just a couple of things to wrap us up on sort of behind the scenes. Uh, this movie had a budget of three point five million dollars, but domestically did sixteen point three international numbers. God knows the sixties. It's very tough to track yeah. hard international numbers but like this movie was a genuine hit it was the one of the highest earners for columbia pictures at that point in time and landed at number 12 for the domestic box office that year right between georgie girl and follow me boys Uh, follow me boys was a fred mcmurray disney film and uh yeah the top three for the year we've talked about this year before but number one was the bible in the beginning which like was one of the the big later era biblical epics um it's uh it's a it's something to sit through. Uh number 2 was Hawaii with Julie Andrews and number 3 was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the Elizabeth Taylor starring vehicle uh, and with uh, Richard Burton as well. Um that was a big Oscar film and kind of marks where movies are going. The Bible is kind of where they've been. Virginia Woolf is where movies are going to start to head in the 70s. Um and just lastly kind of an update on Matt Helm because we'll talk about the film, but in 2018, there was a deadline story that screenwriter Tom Shepard had been hired to write a new Matt Helm film. Tom Shepard, not a name people would really recognize. He only has one credit on, on IMDb, and it was for the movie Doolittle, the uh, Robert Downey Jr. film. But to be fair, he wrote an early version that was drastically overhauled. So he really did not write Doolittle. He wrote a movie called The Voyage of Dr. Doolittle that became, at some point, over many, 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 many different director changes and writer changes, do little. But anyways, he was going to write a new Matt Helm film for Paramount, and it was going to star Bradley Cooper and be executive produced by George Clooney, Grant Hasloff, Alex Kurtzman, and Roberto Orsi, and was also going to have um, (laughs) Steven Spielberg at that point attached in a producer role. So this was going to be a big deal. Spielberg had talked in 2009 about he wanted to direct a Matt Helm film, so he was creatively attached to this project as well, and there has been nothing since. <laughs> well, rem- remember this film, I think the Matt Helm film series was re- resuscitated with James Franciscus in a TV movie called Matt Helm, which got rid of all the excesses of the Dean Martin films. I don't know whether there was, I think there was a TV show, very short-lived, 
But anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah there was. So yeah. I, I, and Cam's brilliant because there's tons of these books and these spy series that sort of were optioned. I believe the Quiller movies, George Siegel Quiller, remember there was a series of those books written by Adam Hall that were going to be made with a great flair in the, I think, early 2000s. And there's lots of other of these dormant spy characters that at some point, Modesty Blaze, I think uh, Quentin Tarantino was going to resuscitate. He, he was produced that TV movie. So there's lots of these things kicking around, but I'm not so sure whether there's any life in them uh, the longer it goes on, because the, the IP, the pre-sellability of this intellectual property, is very, we can barely remember it, and we're spy-hard movie fans and, and uh, novel fans, and it's difficult to get people. But I don't even think, there's a 28th unpublished uh, Matt Helm book, that uh, because Don Hamilton died, and that remains unpublished, so that tells us all we need to know about where this franchise is, especially post-Austin Powers. I think it might be difficult to resurrect it just goes to show i mean i posted about it on twitter today that i was watching it and the reaction was mixed between like oh yeah those films and matt helm huh yeah what's dean martin doing in a a spy film um so that's and that's that's you know thousands of people following that love spy movies they don't really know about it and there's four of these films i'm really excited to sort of put them back into the uh, the small grab a people that listen to us and, and have them talking about it and and uh yeah i'm excited for that and they're, they're all really they're all really good fun in their austin powsey Derek flinty kind of so they're very entertaining whatever they are i think if you check your mind in a certain way they're very entertaining but people do that every week when they listen it's fine yeah. <laughs> um well i speaking of uh it's about time uh that we joined matt helm dean martin by going loco down in acapulco and speaking (laughs) about the silencers uh aj you are our guest i want to hear from you you've revisited the film for the show for this show what do you think about the film today um it largely concerns the big o trying to sabotage an american missile slash slice program so far so dr no it's set in ostensibly mexico although i think it's in the back streets around burbank um every yeah. joke i think we were discussing this before every joke that austin powers makes they do here seriously to some extent um but it's really dean martin wisecracking smoking and drinking his way through a series of cabarets with beautiful dancing girls with a notional Spectre-esque headquarters in a smaller than Ken Adams-sized setting, um, eventually leading this grand denouement in a big steel-doored steel kind of TV movie-sized studio setting with Victor <laughs> Bruno as Dr. Chan. It's immensely entertaining. Along the way, but, uh, Dean Martin's M-like figure gives him um, a stern American actor whose name I can't remember, gives him various gadgets, including, uh, this is a unique, unique thing, a gun where you point it forward, it shoots backwards, and uh, a coat that has explosive buttons. And he's got, uh, apparently they did a car deal with Ford or Mercury, a, and a station wagon type Matt Helm mobile, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, it ends like all the best Bond spoofs in a, in a in a bed that tilts them into a huge bubble bath with a beautiful woman. And 
studied throughout with Dean Martin singing and some quite nice songs by some of the girls with some like spicy lyrics and an Elmer Bernstein score. And that's really all. Think Casino Royal, think Austin Powers, think Derek Flint with a soup song of Sean Connery's James Bond. And you've got the silences and the series. And this was actually probably, I think, the most grounded of the series. I think they, they got oh, wow. slightly wilder. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, you're charting one, a course for us here. This is going to be interesting. You what you're getting in for. I mean, it's more watchable and entertaining than, say, Casino Roll 67. It makes some sort of sense. It's fun in a kind of enjoyable way. There are slight moments where it takes itself seriously, which are good. And, yeah, it's um, it's a very entertaining watch, and that that's, that's the story. I mean... AJ's definitely on board. Cam, what about you? This was an interesting one. <laughs> and I, I think, like, it's funny. But when I um was making the master list initially, when we were putting that together, I remember when I stumbled across the Dr. Goldfoot films. And I was like, okay, these are going to be, like, the low, low mark for <laughs> what, like, the kind of the American 60s spy films could be, right? Like, that's kind of like mm-hmm. you got your helms and your flints. And then you got the stuff like Dr. Goldfoot. I feel like the division of quality is closer than one really expects. Like, I feel like there's a, these movies almost don't really operate on quality. They operate on the vibe. And I think brilliant, the brilliant. vibe... Totally yeah. Yeah. Like, the vibe of the silencers is... I had fun with it. I thought yeah. Dean Martin is... I mean... Like, boozy Dean Martin in movies is just fun. Like, I find that a very fun personality, and I've enjoyed him both in dramatic films as well as the comedies. But, you know, I just recently was in California, and I went and saw um, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, at the New Beverly Theater, which he owns. And before the movie, they aired a trailer for The Wrecking Crew, the fourth Matt Helm film. And in it, it's it's one of those trailers where they're just kind of like, uh, it's the actors. It's not really showing many scenes of the movie. And it's Dean Martin doing a drunk act, introducing all of his female co-stars incorrectly. And it was genius. <laughs> it was hilarious. And it made me that much more excited to watch The Silencers. And so I was very appreciative when I saw a lot of that same energy here. It's what carried me through the movie. It's why I had fun with it. It's colorful. I think like Stella Stevens is borderline great in this movie. Um, you know, a lot of the female stars of the movie probably get some lesser material than perhaps other spy films might give them. But I think like a lot of them rise to the occasion and really deliver memorable work. But I thought Stella Stevens is like a comedic discovery in this movie. So like in terms of like the vibe and the energy, I had a lot of fun with it. What I tend to find with this, as well as even like Flint, both Flints, frankly, when it suddenly has to rely on the spy plot and that has to kick into gear... I find the energy starts to sag a little bit. And I find myself much more involved in more, I guess in this case, the romantic comedy kind of it happened one night shenanigans between him and Stella Stevens than I really am by the time that there's going to be missile launches and things like that. See, I, I would dis- I, oh, I can't disagree with how your interpretation is. That That's how you take it. I, Don't disagree me, with I my think... interpretation, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to. Um, the Flint films like have a comedy edge because of how the world is weird but flint is very serious i would say this is very much like 
Flint takes the world seriously, whereas Matt Helm doesn't really take anything particularly seriously. And I, I don't think you can really draw the line between them. I think they're almost like different vibes. And vibes is very much the word that you, you sort mm. of sort of champion there. And I definitely agree. This is like the hangout spy film. Like I don't really like Thunderball. Notorious for not liking Thunderball. Right. Um because I don't like the hangout vibe. But because I know what Bond can be, and I've seen it in the three films before it, I've seen the action Bond in Doctor No and from Russia with Love. I've seen a slightly cooler Bond in Goldfinger, and now he's just lounging around with Domino. Who wouldn't? <laughs> but you know, we get the idea. This, for me, I mean, this is what I, it works. Has this film got a thrilling story? No. Is there great action scenes? No. <laughs> I mean, they feel like a precursor to some of that season one Star Trek action where it's like Shatner's <laughs> stunt double rolling in. <laughs> just drop kicking an Andorian and you just yeah. see the color of the skin under the... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, does it feature great performances? Not really. There's a couple of like, I would say that shine a little bit. Um, is this the height of 60s spy cinema? No. <laughs> but is this film a ton of fun? Yes. Yes, it is. I like This is... There's films people go, like, this is this is some of the best spy films of all time. We choose those films, at least between us. I think some of the films that we've put on the knock list, I would sooner watch this than those. Like, I would put this on before Zero Dark Thirty. Well, one's a lot more fun than the other, that's for sure. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, like, I, I would probably reach for this sort of vibe than I would some of the other, like, even Spy Kids and stuff like that. This is just fun to me. Um... And it's got its problem, sure, and we'll tackle that in a little bit. But overall, you're just seeing this guy hanging out in this world, sliding from his <laughs> bed into a bathtub, <laughs> rolling out the bath into a shimmy machine, having his pajamas lowered onto him like a Wallace and Gromit skit, and then having coffee made for him. I want to live this life. This is the I don't want to be Bond. Sure. It's too much action and, and travel. I just want to be Matt Helm and just sort of roll around a bit. I think the word we can all agree on, Cam's word is vibe, and I think that's yeah. that's perfect for this. Yeah, it, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with both of you. I think what I like, kind of from a scholar's point of view, the provenance of this spy franchise was a lot deeper and richer than people at first take granted for, and the end result doesn't doesn't belie any of that provenance, any of that judgment, any of those skills of people, which goes to show how skillfully the Bond films were made, but also how you can get it wrong. And this film doesn't get it wrong, but it's not what it's, you know, no one's discussing the Matt Helm film series in 2022. It's not culturally sticky the way Bond is. And it's kind of very much an emblem of its times. I mean, my, my I think Thunderball Thunderbore can be boring and in places. Um, but I think some of the our most outrageous spy films, the, the, the spoofs like Casino or 67, or my personal favorite is Operation Kid Brother, are so outrageous. This fits more or less into that that scheme of things where it's not trying to be a torn curtain or a you know anything remotely serious. It's just they just gave up the minute they began. And maybe that's what they thought Bond was. I mean Bond can be mis so easily misconstrued as a series of gadgets and sexy women and jokes. And it's not. And no Bond film is this. And and this has some interesting ideas, but really the vibiness of it takes over from any plotting or characterization or any kind of 
it's interesting that Phil Carlson wanted to make that previous project quite light and frothy. Well, he certainly succeeded with this. Yeah, like there's a real commitment to tone that this movie has as well as the Flints did, the Liquidator really did as well. Yeah. You can even say the doc- the first Dr. Goldfoot. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think like that movie, I think Dr. Goldfoot, you know, in terms of which one I would rather rewatch, The Silencers or Goldfoot, uh, clearly the, like The Silencers is the superior film. But like all of them, they do not second guess themselves. They jump whole hog yeah. into this bizarro energy there there's a lot of humor that's very strange or even you know the casino royale 67 like who knows what was going on behind the scenes on that movie but like the final product is very consistent in what it's trying to do and same with the silencers it's like the kind of movie i can totally see putting this movie on for you know more of a general you know film watcher and then sitting there being like i can't watch this this is too stupid but I kind of admire how committed it is to its bizarro world, everything about it. And just having Dean Martin there, I think, is so important. I think we struggle a little bit, Scott, with Rod Taylor in The Liquidator. (laughs) And that there wasn't, like, a really well-honed comic persona or even just leading man persona at that point. He's a very capable Mm -hmm. actor who would do good work, especially later on. But... That movie, uh, a little rough, whereas Dean Martin is such a specific energy so that when he just like walks into a scene in this movie, the scene works because he brings so much to just establishing that world around him. Well, uh, yeah, my only touchstone apart from this for him is airport. Yeah. But yeah, you see him walking onto that plane. Yeah, he's, I'm sure he's probably got a scotch in hand whilst he's going to the cockpit of that plane. but. It's D. Martin, and the the cockpit instantly becomes cooler because he's there. And this film, I think, benefits from that same energy. It's just you're hanging out with Dean Martin, who's doing some spy stuff. Sorry, I'm a huge fan of Dean Martin's later award-nominated work in the Cannonball Run series. So I think this uh, <laughs> that is a legacy of that. No, I, I totally agree with, with with what you're saying. I think Dean Martin's. As I said before, his mature persona, his established persona, was different from the other pictures. Uh, Rod Taylor and the Liquidator is a great example. I, I was, in fact, you mentioned being at Beverly Hills. I was in LA recently, and this would be a perfect new Beverly Cinema watch. This the Matt Helm film series, and it's very much an American thing. It's a vibe of you know, let's not go to Mexico, let's shoot it in the back lot. It's very kind of let's let's Hollywoodize the spy franchise mythos in, in in a way that, you know, pokes fun at it. it really, the Cold War wasn't really cold in Burbank in 1966. It didn't really matter much. And this it feels very insulated in its own bu- its own cultural bubble. And it's more fun because of it. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think I do have a sort of overarching question about these American attempts at Bond. I'm going to ask at the end when we wrap up. So we'll come back on that. Uh, what I want to do is just throw it out for things that we want to highlight that we liked about the film. So, AJ, I'll go to you first. Something you that's very prominent to you you want to just talk about. Um, well, I like the opening dance number, which sets us in the world with... Um, is it Citrice playing this gold bikini girl who suddenly gets shot? And that's that's quite interesting. The music's very good. The lyrics are really good. It's very much Dean Martin world. It, it, it sort of set almost quasi like Benita in Goldfinger, but not quite... So, so I like all the musical set pieces. When he's driving around in his Matmobile, um, there's inexplicably he's crooning and singing along. 
uh, with the girl. I like those moments. They're completely unspy fictiony, but they're great. I do like the Q briefing scene with the, the M character with with a reversible gun. There's a there's lots of great one liners where he the reversible gun shoots the the, the boss stops a bullet in a yellow page is tucked into his waistband, um, and there's these exploding buttons and there's got quite nice pyrotechnics and practical effects there um so i like those elements i do like victor bruno's chung say for all for all that's wrong with it everything's right with it he chews up the scenery and he's just a fun character um i guess i riff off all those bond aspects of it i kind of like the kind of quasi cold war-y plot about the nuclear program underground but Really, you don't think about that much. Don't don't take it. Why should we take it more seriously than the writers did? So you know, that's what I like. The, I think, as Cam says, the vibe of it is really good fun. I think the musical, like the use of music throughout the movie, is genius. I think piping in those Dean Martin songs, it's like it's silly, but it also. I mean, again, like that commitment to tone, like it creates the world of Matt Helm just using these little interstitials, the way it establishes characters about him singing about each of these people he's with, I thought was really effective. And yeah, seeing Sid Charisse was amazing because I'm a big fan of the Gene Kelly musicals, like Singing in the Rain and stuff like that. And just to see her in a movie like this was fantastic. It did start off a bit rough though, when he's daydreaming in bed and nuzzling a pillow and he has a little (laughs) dream about a about a cowgirl and he's like mm, who wants to ride tonight and i'm like oh no but this film is taking a turn already it's sexy sex everyone isn't that what you're like in the morning when you're waking up scott <laughs> yeah hannah's gone to work i'm by myself you've got robert weber as the, the cowboy this character that that is a darker character in the book which is a kind of an international comment on america and america the way they do their foreign policy which in this movie is is sort of reduced to just a silly caricature, but that kind of obsession with Americana as well is quite interesting to watch. Made by America, it's kind of you can see that kind of Eurocentric vibe at looking at America, but done by Americans. It's sort of interesting then. Those songs, as as Cam says, there's a commitment to tone, and there is some rough idea of some sort of unified quality they're going for, but it's just kind of blamongified into Dean, Ma- Dean Martin home movies, so to speak. I will tip my hat to another moment with the music, though. It's, it's, it's good you're bringing it up. It's when uh, they turn the radio on and Frank Sinatra's Come Fly With Me is playing. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. hey, get that guy off the radio. Yeah, well, yeah. He can't sing. And then she changes the dial and it's uh, Dean Martin. And everybody loves somebody. He's like, hey, that guy's got some good pipes. Yeah, yeah. It's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. There's lots of that stuff in here, which is which again is very meta, which which rewards veering, but it's very difficult to describe outside. Yeah, you have to kind of immerse yourself, and then these things pay off. There's lots of great one-liners. And this movie, like rap production, right as the Dean Martin show was launching, and that was like a fairly long-running, successful TV show of him as the host, basically boozing with the guests. And like this movie really does feel like kind of that celebration of the celebrity of Dean Martin in a way that's perfect to launch this TV show. So it it really was fortuitous timing. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, 
or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? It's commentary time, but it's also Bond anniversary time, and we're going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Die Another Day by catching one major CG wave. Surf's up, people. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um, what about you, Cam? Something you liked. Stella Stevens. I mentioned her earlier. But, like, I, I think, actually, there's a number of, like, performances. I thought that, like, uh, Dahlia uh, Lavi as um, mm-hmm. Tina was very strong as well. But, like, once Stella Stevens shows up, just doing these, like, comedic pratfalls, like, as a physical comedy performance, it's very, very strong. And she has several moments through the movie. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know what this performance was particularly acclaimed in its time you know she's an incredibly attractive you know woman and i'm sure that a lot of the focus was often on that in reviews at the time but you look at the comedy she is delivering how she's finding this dynamic with dean martin dean martin is an icon like that's intimidating to play against and i think she does a fantastic job bouncing off of him creating sparks um, I think they're kind of back and forth of hating each other and then kind of falling for each other. It's ridiculous, but it's played very well. And you watch just like scenes where she's um, trapped out in the mud and she's doing full physical pratfalls, falling in the mud, rolling around, getting up, trying to get into this car that's locked. Unbelievable physical work. And I think in a different era, she would have gotten a lot more job opportunities that would have showcased those skills. And she really didn't in her time. It's really unfair, frankly. No, I agree. There's a moment not long before she's sort of pratfalling around in the mud where she's she's been drinking whilst... I mean, th- let's just preface by saying that the Helmmobile, which is a great term, or <laughs> Mat- Matmobile, you, I think you use Matmobile, AJ, so I'll stick with Matmobile. Um, it's, I'm going to use that for the rest of the four films. <laughs> Matmobile it is. Um, has a built-in uh, bar, which yeah. you know, some cars do, makes sense, but it's very much a Matt Helm thing. Uh, and she goes from having a couple of sips to the next scene, she's like slurring her words and, and drunk. And there's some top-notch overacting drunk acting Hilarious. right there. It's, it's just really fun to watch. Well, in, in a world of Nolanverse and very serious spy movies, this kind of delicate bedroom comedy, the, this physical comedy, well judged, is actually very hard to do. And that lightness of touch of this movie, I always think of the first Roger Moore Bond film, Live and Let Die, and this opening sequence with Miss Caruso, Madeline Smith, uh, playfulness with M and Moneypenny. If that's a bedroom comedy, that's really skilled and timing. And this is replete with that all the time. And the, the tone of this film, deeply unfashionable, is actually very hard to replicate. It would be very hard to do nowadays you and i think the skill set that cam said and stella stevens is also a very good actress anyway and went on to do some interesting stuff but i think um there's a lot more to it than even dean martin's performance is judged and skillful it's not completely loose and off off the road i think there's a lot to be had to by this to be enjoyed in this film um in its subtle way you know, Stella Stevens, it kind of reminded me of a quote, because uh, Stella Stevens is obviously opposite 
you know, Dean Martin in this movie. And I, I look at what she has to do versus what he has to do. He has to look cool a lot and be kind of, you know, Dean Martin, as we kind of know and love him. And you look at what she has to deliver on screen. And it reminded me a little bit of the Ginger Rogers quote about um, when she was asked, you know, she danced with Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and was asked, which one was better? And she said, well, I did all the same moves as both of them. And I did it backwards in high heels. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, right. That's, that's right. <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of what Stella Stevens has. Dean Martin is the one who's the star of the movie. Everyone's going to walk out of this being like, that's a you know Dean Martin vehicle. But I look at what she has to do because this movie, you know, they want her to look incredibly attractive in every single scene mm -hmm. of this movie. Plus, she has to do all of this very broad physical comedy and like just real commitments to the bit and basically walk out looking like a champ at everything. That is a really tough order. I think she had a far tougher assignment than what Dean Martin, frankly, had. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, as for my likes, we've kind of covered them all. I, I think Dean Martin's great. The supporting cast, Dalia Lavi, Stella Stevens, fantastic stuff. Um, we mentioned. I mean, I love the backwards firing gun. I think it. Yeah. When I first saw it, I'm like, this is this is silly. This isn't going to work. But they really had thought about the idea and had different interesting set pieces built around this gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually showed some forethought, and I really appreciated that. I didn't like, want to do any spoilers, but yeah, exactly, you're right. No, no, spo spoil yeah. away. People will have seen it, or they'll just yeah, be yeah. listening along. It's fine. Um, but yeah, there's like the moment where she goes to shoot herself, knowing that the bullet will backfire on the guard that's about to. Sh He's like, "You don't have to do that," and then and then gets shot. <laughs> it's 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 funny stuff. I mean, it uh, in in reality, that's the most stupid invention you could ever come up with. Oh yeah. You, in any moment of panic, you'll just pull the trigger and shoot yourself every time. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a real like uh, Q branch invention from Casino Royale 67, particularly. Um, insanity. But what I want to mention is just kind of going back to the vibe, but also just like the world building. Mm -hmm. And it happens pretty early on. We mentioned the Wallace and Gromit inventions of the bed sliding into the pool and then the pool going up into the shimmies and then the dressing gown. But this is all played like this is reality and somehow in this film it works if you look at the flint films and like i remember flint talking to the dolphin in the second film and things like that yeah you sit there and go this is this is, doesn't work this is weird for some reason all these eccentric things in this film seem to work i don't know why it just has that vibe about it very early on um, like the bar coming out the side of the yeah. of the car or like the 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 driving drinks bar by yeah, the pool yeah, yeah. that has a little motorized scooter thing or or the giant throbbing red thing that shoots <laughs> at the, at Matt Helm. The laser? I don't know what it... Is it a laser? Like, There's well, no laser like, beams. Like some boring tool or something, isn't it? I don't know what yeah. it is. I just wrote red throbbing yeah, thing. Yeah. I left <laughs> it at that. Okay, yeah. Don't want to know, Scott. Don't get technical on Scott. <laughs> Sexy sex, man. It's a hell of a year. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, I, it, it, for me, I was just impressed with its world building and it somehow, without being this travelogue, like a lot of yeah. Bond, uh, Bond films and other spy films of the time wanted to go around the world and they use it as an excuse to go see all these sites when they were filming them. This is really like, as as you both said, in a, in a back lot in Burbank, done on the cheap and it made money and it, it still looks great. Um, but speaking of those giant red throbbing things... They're starting to point our way and things are getting a bit hot. So we have to talk about dislikes. There's got to be some. AJ, you're up first. Something you didn't like about the film. 
Well, you talked about the budget before. I can mention it was about £3.2 million. I don't think much of that made its way on the screen. I think Dean Martin pockets a million. It was made from July 66 to September 66, probably in and around Los Angeles, and it shows. I mean, it purports to be this big, you know, Hollywood you know, production budget, but it doesn't. All the action is completely risible, not very exciting. Um I don't think that was even their intention. It was all played for laughs, and it's completely unexciting on that level. And as I think Cam said, any time they try to put any thriller aspect in it, it all falls apart, and it doesn't sustain attention. It hasn't dated very well. Uh, Victor Bruno, while fun, is a little bit embarrassing to watch now. And I think that kind of the wholesale attitudes of women and it doesn't hold up in a way a lot of other films of its time do hold up those are things that don't last and i don't like cultural relativism where you judge something of old by today's standards but even by that standard then it was it was very very hokey um dean martin's shtick is fun and interesting for a while but for the whole film there are moments when he gets a little bit serious there are moments when He's a little bit tough, and I kind of like that. But generally, the shtick uh, is, is, gets a bit old by the end of it. It feels like a slightly curled-up sandwich by the end of it. Sort of the interest and idea of it is good, but it just doesn't last even the length of its, its own runtime, you know, rather like Liz Truss as Prime Minister. You know, I think it's sort of... That, that, that will, don't joke will date very badly. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, I, I think uh, so. Those sorts of things. When you consider the provenance, when you consider Irving Allen's producing chops, when you consider Donald Hamilton's books, when you consider all the people that got involved, this was the end result. You know, in another parallel universe, these people would have made Bond films. Yeah. So there's an element of me going, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. So I, I, I don't think I dislike it too much because my expectations were always set. You know, if you were a cinema guy in '66 expecting a rival Bond film, you might be peed off by this. Coming to it now, it's a bit like watching Austin Powers and expecting some, even though it's played straight. This is like a uh, embryonic Austin Powers movie. If you go in with that attitude, you'll enjoy all the kind of crassness of it. One thing we haven't mentioned, and we probably should have, is just Playboy magazine and oh, its yeah. impact on culture, because like this movie is the Playboy era as a spy film like that is exactly what it's referring to with like i think they even say what is it like slay girl or something in this yeah, that's movie? Right. yeah 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 so it's like that energy is all over this movie and that is an era that uh i think has had a lot of critical reappraisal over the years and a lot of the damage it did but ultimately like this movie is a snapshot of that particular era so if people are not interested in delving back into that era this is not the spy movie for them but as an encapsulation of what that period of time felt like or at least to people who were seeing it on you know in pop culture and tv this movie is very much the embodiment of that when i was in la i visited the site of the playboy mansion gated up it's being redeveloped and that kind of was a symbol for our times i totally agree with you cam the sleigh girls were to feature throughout them at home. They're basically his travelling bevy of beauties. And I believe Nat King Cole's daughter, Carol Cole, was a sleigh girl as well. She, she has a yeah. big part in this. So 
that has all these cultural bits of interest and yeah but it's very dated now and slightly embarrassing but you know what it is what it is and you kind of need to go into that with kind of you know mind function like parachute function best when open you know i think that's when it, it that's when you enjoy it so to speak so just we want to put a what do they put a warning on these things if you go back and watch it you know Try and read a book. Try and read a Donald Hamilton book. I think that one might have been a good entry point. And then watch this film, and then see. In, in you can, uh, your re, your 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 viewers or listeners will be in their mindset to enjoy it for what it is. Definitely. Yeah, uh, Cam. Anything jump out for you? Um, for me, it, I, I'm similar. Where once it kind of like rolls into kind of the action-based plot stuff my energy just level kind of dies and it makes me appreciate i think a lot more and we haven't talked about austin powers yet on the show because we want to tackle all these kinds of movies that led into austin powers first but it really makes me appreciate like the pace of the austin powers films and how they can work in their little action elements but they just keep moving and that's something i found like both this and the flints i find once I'm kind of waiting for explosions and gun battles and things like that, they're not staged well, so yeah, yeah. the pace just kind of dies. When I'm watching Dean Martin kind of flop around on the ground, try to do, you know, gunning people down with a machine gun, it just isn't yeah. particularly interesting. And the car chase, um, as you know, AJ mentioned, is uh, <laughs> it's a little lethargic to watch this station wagon roar around the road. As much fun as it is, as it is to see uh, Roger C. Carmel, who of course was Harry Mudd on Star Trek, um, as the villain wearing the helmet pursuing him. That's kind of fun, but it's the, more of those types of action elements. And it is interesting, having now watched a number of these 60s spy spoofs, kind of these responses to the James Bond phenomenon, it's very clear that like none of them, I don't know if they didn't understand it, but maybe they didn't feel at all confident in trying to meet Bond on its action level. It seemed like they all picked up the kind of the trappings of Bond, you know, the beautiful women, the gadgets, the kind of the big maniacal villains and all that sort of thing. They picked up on that stuff. But when it came to kind of the thrills and the action-based storytelling that Bond really, really exploded out of the gate with, they just didn't even bother. And they just didn't feel like they could even try. Well, it's, it's tough as well because, you know, if you look back on Doctor No, it's definitely not got the set pieces of You Only Live Twice. No, like that, that, that's night and day. That's budget. That's uh, scope, vision. These things have all grown over time, and we're judging it by like the whole of the '60s run of Bond against this one film. I I don't know. I haven't seen the other Matt Helm films. I've heard they don't go any better than this. But maybe there is a giant rooftop shot from a helicopter of Matt Helm fighting people <laughs> uh, on a long shot. Probably not, but maybe. You never know. Um, for me, in terms of dislikes, I kind of we have kind of covered them. I mean, the whole Victor Bueno Tung-Z character is, it's not great. It's its in poor taste, we will say that. Yeah. Um, it, luckily, it's not as heavy as the Peter used to know of in one of our dinosaurs is missing it because he's not there as much. He disappears for two thirds of the film. Yeah. Well, it's also like the Peter um, Ustinov makeup was a very like grotesque attempt to replicate it i didn't even honestly know what was going on with the makeup that victor bono was wearing it was clearly styled to look you know asian and quote-unquote exotic or something but it was not the like weird attempt at like replicating something it was very strange i think the sort of eyeshadow it was probably cheap to do and quick to apply and i think that's how they sort of 
the name carries it. But, you know, I, I, I'm really careful about retrospective morality, and I think that's a, a slippery slope. But just in dramatic terms, in his own sense, it doesn't really work. But you know what? Um, I'm sure Irving Allen and, and Phil Carlson never believed this film would be examined by people umpteen years later taking it seriously. No. They were hoping for reruns. I think, didn't the second picture come out the same year, Murderer's Row, come out 66? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they were very quick. Yeah, very quick succession. They were they were quick off the mark. And there's Dean Martin probably pocketing a million of that money, more than Sean Connery got. And, you know, I think it's um, it shows. It's the money's not on the screen. And um, but there we go. I think I think for me the only thing I the hang up I I suppose I've got that's not been talked about too much is we mentioned the pace sort of lack of tension. I just think that they have a really poor setup for a villain and a anything anything to drive the drama of the film. Like the film barely pays it any mind. It's just sort of lip service until it needs to get to that point where they're in that big room. Yeah. That kind of cool set. They've got like a cavernous set yeah, it's fine. with a giant throbbing red thing. Yeah. It looks great. Um and the sort of a Spectre-esque briefing room yes. with all the chairs have like lounge features on them and like footstools, which I thought was really lovely. Blofeld didn't install those on his chairs in Spectre. No. So I think I'm going to the big O. It also had the like the carts, which were very Austin Powers. But, yeah. I'm going to do a side-by-side shot of that online because there's like a whole hallway where they're lined up and I'm like, that's the hallway from Austin Powers, I'm fairly sure. But no other film has a big throbbing red thing. So I think this is the unique selling point <laughs> of this movie. Big throbbing red yeah. thing. Yeah, that should have been on the posters. (laughs) It probably was. It's funny to note too, like Victor Buono. uh, I think this same year um, would show up as King Tut on Batman sixty six. And I thought a lot about Batman sixty six watching this, especially like some of the staging of the action. If you threw up those pows and biffs, it would actually work pretty well in this movie as well. But like, um, I I tend to find with Victor Buono, I think I prefer him more in terms of what he's doing on Batman 66 than here. I think he's better when he goes kind of more outsized and, and fun. Whereas here, I never got a good angle on what they were going with uh, Sun Z. I was like, he's not that funny. He's very soft-spoken. He's not that like outwardly evil in a way where you kind of get that fun of boo-hiss kind of stuff. Yeah. I was like, he just feels like an idea they sketched in. They cast, I think, a really fantastic actor. The wrong actor to play that particular part, but he's a fun comedic actor. Yeah. Um, and they just never quite, quite found that perfect element. It's kind of, honestly, going back again to Flint. I think the first Flint struggles with a very strong villain as well. And yeah. that was kind of the case for me here. Well, it's the anti-American Eagle is the real villain of that film. <laughs> Yeah. I love the Batman 66 <laughs> TV show analogy. That works really well. I think that's the prism through which this should be looked at. Or, as I say, Bond with the Beatles, this was the monkeys. And I think once you once you adjust your TV set for that, then, then you go away and have fun. The score by Elmer Bernstein is brilliant, and the songs yes. are great. That's a huge high yeah. point. Um, and that's worth – that's kind of rather like Casino or 67 – this film is blessed with a much better score than it deserves. I have a question for you, AJ. If um, the the Helm films are the monkeys, what are the Flints? <laughs> What's the Eric Idle band that he made? The Ruttles. The Ruttles. No, yes, I'd the say, Ruttles. you see, these, these were four Matt Helm films. The Flints only lasted two. 
um, find find an uh, find an, an American Beatles esque act that only lasted two albums or shorter span. I'm sure we'll think of something. It will it will pop to my mind. I'm sure they were like the early version of Spinal Tap you see in the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or well, the the Ruttles is good, but yeah. Any final notes before I wrap us up? I've got one question that I sort of signposted at the start. Cam, do you have anything? Um, well, I was just curious. Did you recognize the actress playing Tina? Because there's a, a very clear spy connection. Well, Scenario 67. Yeah, she played the detainer, which I thought was... Yeah. I didn't. It took me a long time to connect that. It wasn't until she showed up with a different haircut later on. Really? Yeah. No, I had that straight away. That was like, hey, it's... Uh, what's the name from 67? Because she gets to have that sort of tete-a-tete with... Um, oh, what's his name? Woody Allen. Yeah. Woody Allen, yeah. that's it. Uh, Dr. Noah. Well, she gets strapped naked to the table with those broad metal straps and, you know. Yes, that's right. Go. Yes, and then, and, there's, and it has that whole sequence of the room where everyone's laying down and yeah. the thing comes from the yeah. ceiling. It's a confusing film. Yes. Um, I had a couple of notes that I'll, I'll mention. One was um, when Stella Stevens has the machine gun and is flailing all over the room firing a gun, I was like, Wow, she's the originator because we would get this with Tiffany Case in Diamonds exactly. Are Forever, as yeah. well as Jamie Lee Curtis in yeah. True Lies. That is a real comedy trope. And Stella Stevens nailed it right out of the gate. And I had a question for you guys Who has the better apartment, Derek Flint or Matt Helm? Very good. Very good. <laughs> I, I like. Oh. See, do I want to be in a, a a poly relationship with four women or do I want a bed that throws me into the bath? <laughs> Both are quite fun. I mean, there's also the spinning bed, which we see in Casino 6. Matt Helm in the, in the film, we should say, is also notionally a photographer and a fashion photographer as well or something like that. That's his job. That's how he goes around the world on assignment. That's very loosely the thing. Um, yep. I've always liked Derek Flint's apartment uh, for some reason. This this is fun. This is a bit too loungy, but hey, it's it's not necessarily the apartment. It's the accessories, and I think we're both in. They're all interested in. But yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, you know, who has better gadgets? You know, who? Yeah, it's one of these questions. I want my Wallace and Gromit, so I'm going with the Matt Helm house. Hopefully it improves over the next three films. Cam, have you got an answer to your own question? I think what tilts it towards Derek Flint for me is the German Shepherd escort that will bring people <laughs> uh, in and out. Exactly. Right. I thought you were going to say like the uh, hair salon in the back. Yeah. Well, maybe one, in one day in my past. <laughs> Not for either of us, no, really. That's, that's irrelevant <laughs> at this point in my life. <laughs> um. My last note was a question I sort of set up at the start, and it's a hard one to get our heads around, but because I've got you, AJ, and I know you've watched the rest of the films, I think I can comfortably ask this question. The two main American attempts at making a James Bond are Derek Flint and now we've experienced Matt Helm. Which do we think, at least so far for Cam and I, but AJ, you specifically, is the most successful? It doesn't have to be, I know one had four, one had two films, but what is the one that really could still hold, hold up now? My favourite of them all is Our Man Flint, the first Flint one. I think tonally it's just there. It's They're all cheap productions, but somehow that has a through line that I like. I kind of like the threat. I like James Coburn. Um, conceivably, that could have been the American James Bond had it sort of not jumped the dolphin as it did in the second film. But I think um, 
it's pretty thin gruel of it, it is inexplicable actually why there wasn't a successful american spy franchise in that ilk but i think to some extent the answer goes to the skill level that goes to the making of bond film is hugely underestimated artistically culturally and technically rather like dare i say making a comic book movie is now people underestimate the skill set of making a good marvel movie and lots of people think everything they can good popular entertainment um is always a craft or any making anything work is a craft and when it's successful people don't quite understand it so for my money it's our man flint just tonally and just i like the music i like the performances but but it's a good question because it's not necessarily obvious on a different day it could be the first of these they get bigger and more outlandish i really like the wrecking crew which I think is the last of these movies. That's yeah. got gold-plated machine guns and things like that. But so they're worth a what? All of them were worth a watch if you've got this far. Then put them, put them all through your eyes. But and uh, so I highly recommend that. But Our Man Flint for me is the best of the American Bond spy franchises. I think I'll save my answer until we finish all four of them. Cam, do you want to wait until then? Yeah, I think I will as well. Okay. Well. We've mentioned the monkeys enough time, so let's hop on the uh, last train to Clarksville <laughs> and talk about the knock list. AJ, you're our guest, and Cam, as we have a guest, just, just quickly run us through what we're doing here on the show with the knock list. The knock list is the tortured acronym for Need to See Official Classics of the Spy Hearts podcast, where every week after we've talked about a movie, we decide whether it belongs on the canon of all-time great spy films. And that's going to be an interesting question when we talk about the silencers. It is. Um, AJ, you're our guest. You get the first vote. Uh, I will point out that our man Flint is on the knock list. Is it? Yeah. Okay. It was highly debated between the two of us and Alan Porter okay. from Von Lexicon. Good old Alan Porter. If he thinks it's worthwhile, then it, well, there's some substance in it. Him and Gillian, if they think Certainly. it's something worthwhile, I put it down in my book. We, we've shared a pint, all four of us, yes. before I did. Yes, oh, yeah, of course, so, yeah, we did, yeah. AJ, yes or no, is The Silencers making the list of the greatest spy films of all time? I don't need to think about this for a nanosecond more. It has to be resounding, no, unfortunately. It's great fun, but great, I mean, what are you doing to that list if you put this in it, you know, is my view. No, no, it's a valid question, and uh, the integrity of the list must be maintained. It's all still to play for, though, Cam. We still have two votes left. What do you think? It's interesting how I didn't expect this when we kicked off the podcast in the list, and that there are some movies that like defy like quality. It's like if if I'm to talk about like kind of like cultural importance, I think like probably one of these Matt Helms is kind of important, and I haven't seen the other three, so I can't comment on quality. But it's just like you look at sort of that '60s spy vibe. The Helms are important in that regard. Yeah, I suppose so. But at the same time, I struggle with, like, the overall quality of them. Like, the filmmaking level is not particularly high frequently with these types of movies. And this one was one where we've used the word vibe or tone throughout the review. And it's like, I like what it's trying to kind of create with a spy story. But it's not doing it at a level high enough where I can put it you know, safely next to Goldfinger or whatever on the knock list. Like, it doesn't belong with those movies. And I think the thing with, like, Flint is 
it's the one I've seen that came the very closest to belonging in that category. Like it really to me was the highest level of production, performance, and just ultimately delivery that the 60s sort of American spy stuff has achieved. So for me, like this one doesn't live up to like an Our Man Flint, but I still think it's interesting and anyone interested in spy movies needs to watch it or needs to at least watch one of these helms. Well, that's two no's. Was that a no or a yes? It's a no, okay. yeah. It's That's a, a no. no, yeah. You were convincing me, Cam. I was going, you know what? <laughs> it's tough. You need almost like a separate list for like cultural important spy films. Yeah, you know? but you, you had me at the American, an American version of this. My suggestion is, before Scott answers, watch them all and then decide. Yeah. But Scott, mm. you, I, you, I, I can feel a yes coming on from you, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> a resounding yes. <laughs> I'm a believer. I couldn't oh, leave I like a, it. No, I couldn't. You know, yeah, I, it, I, 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 I'm keeping it going. Yeah, yeah. I dig this film, okay. man. It's. I'm keeping it sexy, sixty. Yeah, okay, yeah, no, I dig it. Um, okay, it's got its problems. I, I, okay, honestly, I don't think it belongs in the list of the best spy movies of all time. If I'm being brutally honest with myself, and there's films I've turned away that if I let this on, I think I'd have to second guess myself as to why I said no to those. Like saying no, I mean, I, I couldn't listen. You can look them up online, the ones we've said no to. And there's ones I think that are higher to the benchmark of what we say is quality spy movies than this. This is fun. I would, I would recommend listeners of this show mm to watch this film. But if you're showing this list of the best spy movies of all time to my mum, yeah. I don't know if I would say, hey mum, check out The Silences. Not because she's my mum, but just because I'm just not sure it's quite there. There's there's things missing. There's The plot's a bit breezy. It's it's a bit uh, lackluster when it comes to pace. Um, but there's a lot of good. And we've, we've charted the good and the bad. But three no's. The Silence is the first Matt Helm film is not making the knockers, but don't worry, he has three more films. Matt Helm could still stick the landing. And we've heard people talking about The Wrecking Crew being a good film. Yeah. AJ, you're, you're singing its praises, so we don't know. It all could happen. But unfortunately, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. AJ, I want to thank you dearly for joining us today, taking us through the journey of The Silences and sharing your wisdom on all things spy related um yeah honestly thank you for for joining us on the show thank you scott thank you for inviting me on thank you cam great to meet you thank you for spy hards we've just celebrated 60 years of james bond we've been to the albert hall we've been to concerts at the bfi and one is reminded that things like matt helm things like the the genre that was resuscitated are still going and they still have some resonance now. And I think uh, watching The Silences was a, a nice antidote to all of that and kind of good fun as well. So anyone, any spy related, all your listeners or viewers or what have you, do a good job keeping the spy end up, you know, whether they're reading it or watching it. So well done for you guys. And I think because of this podcast, lots of people might discover Donald Hamilton, might discover, you know, Dean Martin, and that's a good history and scholastic lesson. I think so. More power to both your elbows. Oh, well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, before we let you go, AJ, you know, 
we've mentioned the book. There'll be links in the show notes below. I'm looking forward to the updated copy. Um, and with all things No Time to Die and beyond, hopefully. But where can people find you online? Um, I'm not online per se. I'm on, I'm on Twitter and I'm on, at, uh, I think it's ACE, A-C-E, capital Toots, T-O-O-T-S. Um, but uh, we've got, Matthew Field and I have written a, a new MI6 confidential special magazine, 150-page brochure celebrating Sean Connery as James Bond. We did one a few years ago and Roger Moore. We've interviewed... The, as many remaining co-stars of Sean Connery alive and gone through the Bond mythos through his words and contemporary interviews at the time. There's a lot of magazines out like this. None has done what we've done. And that's about to go to print. And so I urge people to go to MI6 Confidential, uh, mi6hq.com. And when that comes out imminently, get a copy of that. They're limited copies. It, they've done a great job there doing that. And I think it might shed some light on the Bond and the bomb mania mythos as well so yeah thanks for reading some kind of hero the remarkable story of the james bond films published by the history press it's still worth a read by matthew field and aj chowdhury and uh, thank you guys for uh, having me on oh no no it was our pleasure yeah and we'll try and find a link to the mi6 confidential uh, book yeah. as well uh, if we can find that online if it's published by the time this episode comes out which is in a yeah, few exactly. weeks time so we, we may have time to, to yeah. turn this around but um aj Thank you for joining us. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about 1966's The Silences, the first of the Matt Helm quadrilogy. Love that word. Um, Hope you've enjoyed it. But Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What are we doing next week? Yes, we are tackling the historical spy thriller Operation Finale, which sort of takes place in the shadows of World War II. Not really a World War II movie, but more about the, uh, the after effects of World War II, starring Oscar Isaac. And I believe this one's available pretty much everywhere on Netflix. So it's easy to track down. So give it a watch for sure. Yes, and we have a great guest joining us for the review and an interview with the screenwriter for the film, Mr. Matthew Orton, all for you next week to enjoy. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Operation Finale from 2018 and join us next week. If you liked what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and instagram but until next week listeners it's the end of the show and everything is a-okay